0: Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. I am so delighted you're here and you are taking a break in your day and you're connecting with somebody really important. (laughs) You. (laughs) You are connecting with yourself. You're giving yourself the time to breathe, to be mindful, to focus on what's really important. And there is a really remarkable scripture written in the sixth century AD by a Hindu sage called Shankara, and he divides the content of what we can focus on into what's real and what's unreal. He says, The eternal consciousness, things that don't change, that's real. Everything else is unreal. And he recommends we spend at least part of our day focusing on the real. So I'm glad you're spending part of your day giving yourself this gift of being present of tuning into the real, the unchanging, and positive messages. High Energy Health is full of inspirational ideas. There are so many people who bookmark this page, who bookmark this program, and come back week after week after week for inspiration. Whatever craziness is happening out there in the world, you know you can always come back here for a an island of sanity. And so I'm so glad you're prioritizing your own well-being by being here today and by sharing the inspiration, the wisdom that you will hear on the show. I know for me, tuning into that every day is such a part of my life and it frames everything else I do. Once you set up your day with that frame of well-being, it's like a picture and you're putting that frame around your picture. And that frame is saying, I care about myself. I care about myself to slow down. I care about myself enough to breathe. I care about myself enough to show up and give myself this island of sanity in what can seem like a very crazy world. So I'm so delighted and grateful you're here. You're part of this community and you're exposing yourself to some fantastic ideas, inspirational thoughts, and also practical tools you can use to shift your life. So make it a habit. Make this part of every week make that self care every part of every day. And I so support your well being. My guest today is Richard Dixie. He's the author of a book called Three Minutes a Day, a 14 week course to learn meditation and transform your life. He's also a senior faculty member at Dharma College in Berkeley, California. He's been a research scientist, lifelong student of Buddhism, he also holds advanced degrees in biophysics and the philosophy of science. He directed a research unit at the London Hospital before becoming CEO of his own biotech company. For more information, you can find him on the web at richarddixie.com. I'll just spell his last name so you get that spelling right for the website. So it's Richard, D-I-X-E-Y, RichardDixey.com. Richard. Welcome, and thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, too, and a great introduction. Lovely to hear all these different things you're talking about.
0: So I would love to hear about your journey from being a biophysicist and being into medical research and then winding up teaching at a Buddhist college. What it would be It's a
1: long journey, isn't it? <laughs> it sounds terrifying. You know, I really began honestly. This all it began when I was a student at university. I began to realise that our view of the world, what we make of the world, and what science tells the world is are quite contradictory to one another. And this is really something that informed my search right from day one. All we experience, and this is really the essence of it, all we experience, is either our five senses. Or our thoughts and imaginations. That's it. Everything else is an inference. That's to say, we infer an external world based on our five senses, thoughts, and imaginations. We infer an internal world based on our five senses, thoughts, and imaginations. We're living in a map. Now, this is a really fundamental, it's it's unarguable when you actually think about it, but it's surprising how little it's mentioned. And you know we have a two eyes, we see a flat pair of images from them. we combine them together and make a sense of space. We have two ears, we hear slightly different signals. we combine them together and get a sense of direction. We have a body image made entirely of sense receptors in our body. That's why teenagers knock things over because their body maps wrong. We're living in a map, and understanding this is very, very important now, of course, we've known this scientifically for a long time. But it's remarkable how little attention is actually given to it, because what it means is that what we call the world is actually a construct. We are constructing from our five senses, thoughts and imaginations. That's where it's coming from. And if we don't understand how we construct the world, we land up confused. And the reason we do is because that construction itself is colored. By our opinions, by our likes and dislikes, by our background, by our education, by our economic circumstance, by all kinds of other things. So the world we actually see is not the world as it is. It's a world colored by us. And that colorant is a major source of stress. And the reason it's a source of stress is because advertisers, now, of course, with mobile phones, the mobile phones, technology all kinds of things are impinging upon how we make the world and causing us to get stressed by what we're constructing and also to see it in the wrong way compared or in, at least in a different way compared to other people so we land up disagreeing very strongly about the same set of facts we land up stressed by change etc cetera, etc cetera. and meditation is a fundamental life skill fundamental. It should be there with reading and writing. It should be reading, writing, and meditation. The trouble is nobody says this. In fact, it took me most of my career going from scientific objectivity to spiritual subjectivity to scientific object like this, tick-tock, tick-tock, until eventually it dawned on me that this was the problem. There's nothing wrong with scientific objectivity except for the word objectivity. Everything is an inference. No scientist can tell you this is true. All he can say is, this fits the data well. He's making an inference. Now, understanding this is very deep because once we begin to understand this, we can deal with technology, but we're not obligated to believe it's true. And we can deal with advertising, we can deal with opinion, we can deal with political difference, we can deal with all kinds of things without being obligated to take them as true. And this, to me, is where meditation really starts having a big impact on our lives. So that's that's what inspired me, I suppose, in the latter half of my life, to really try and put this together. And, you know, Dharma College, it's a school designed to reimagine the Asian wisdom lineages. Now, you began with a quote from Shankara. There's a wonderful example of a very wise lineage coming from India, unbroken. Now, all of our wisdom lineages in the West are broken. All our Christian lineages are broken. All our Islamic lineages are broken. They're all bust. And as a result, it's hard for us to really understand what is being said in these traditions. The wonderful thing is the Asian traditions are not broken. Consequently, we have them intact. They've come down to us intact. Our job is to make sense of them within our contemporary educated world. And, of course, that takes reinterpretation. And that's what I've been trying to do with this book. It's a long introduction. Forgive me.
0: So if you were to give us an example from your life of, say, something that Richard was or thought he was before meditation, and an insight he had that shifted him to a different state of being. What was that like key epiphany for you in your own personal life?
1: Okay. Well, I mean, there are lots of examples of this, obviously. I wanted to be quote, successful. I've been taught that being successful and famous is important. And indeed, I did become successful and famous, but you suddenly realize, wow. I'm just now myself successful and famous. Actually, I haven't really done anything. And that's a big realization. Wow! So, you mean, now I've seemed to have achieved this great life aim, but I'm in exactly the same position I was before. Something hasn't changed. And realizing that makes you think, wow, what, what, what am I actually in here? Like, what am I trying to do? And this is where the mapping point becomes really powerful, because a lot of our aims, a lot of the things we think are valuable, turn out to be things in a map of our world rather than our actual experience. They're things we aspire to as if they are valuable, but when we get them, they're no different from anything else. Now, this is not because the world is an illusion. I'm sorry. I totally don't agree with that. The world is not an illusion. But the interface, how we make the world is an inference. That's the key. We are inferring. So one of the things we're told is if you're rich, you will be happy. It's an inference. So, okay, let's get rich. Am I now happy? Uh, No, I'm just rich. I You know the inference turned out to be false, and unfortunately that's true an awful lot of inferences and Unless you can understand how we do this, we have a real problem navigating our lives now. Meditation is quite literally the practice of seeing things as they are, and the things I am referring to when I make that statement are our inputs from our five senses and our thoughts and imaginations, not things. In the world, things in the world are inferences made from those five senses, thoughts, and imaginations. We have to get our attention back. And this practice of getting our attention back, it lies at the heart of meditation, all meditation traditions. And the key to it lies in a very simple pair of words. So in our language, we have cognition and we have recognition. Now, that's intensely interesting. When I say I recognize you, that's because I've remembered a previous example, and I've got your name, and I then go, oh, it's you, and I recognize you. Now, we're doing that every time we name something. Every time we pick up an object and go, it's a cup, it's a watch, it's whatever, or "It indeed, it is the world, or it is my life, whatever... Example we give of naming, it's a recognition. It's a redoing of cognition. Now, in that redoing, which actually takes time, it takes about a quarter of a second to redo cognition this way, we actually make the world. So if we could bring our attention to cognition rather than recognition, we would find a world uncolored by our opinion uncolored by our background, uncolored by our wants and dislikes and happiness and sadness, all this language, uncolored by it all. We find something altogether different. And that is really what freedom is. Freedom is being able to react to things as they are, not things as you think they are. And this thinking is a reference for this inference. You know, as they say, life is what happens when you're making other plans. It's exactly that. It's getting back to the life that's happening, not the other plans that you're making, that is the essence of meditation and really getting that distilled down has been a remarkable discovery for me. Now, of course, I still react. The phone rang in the middle of this interview. I was like, oh, my God, i got to do something. Ah," and, And that's because the map says, you're giving an interview. You've got to be right on the money. You can't be disturbed. Who's phoning? Oh, my God. You know, all of that language comes immediately. And what a meditator learns to do is to say, relax. Yeah, I get it. I better turn this thing off rather than freaking out. Now, that ability... To ride over obstacles and not freak out, to respond rather than react to life events is the great fruit that meditation gives us. It's not particularly religious. It's not saying anything about anything. It is quite literally engaging with experience itself. And that really is where the whole thing lies. It's a technique, a series of techniques that have come from the ancient cultures. And the remarkable thing about it is that cognitive psychology and neurophysiology have been penetrating how we structure experience and have made discoveries about how the brain makes a map. And amazingly, they're merely restating statements that were made two and a half thousand years ago by meditators and written down which means we have the capacity to say real things, true things about our experience directly. We don't need a laboratory to tell us who we are.
0: And you and mentioned that, that uh, half-second gap between the the recognition and the response. And I know you explore that in your book as well. Just go ahead and r- remind us of what that gap is and what we can do with
1: that gap yeah well actually i start the book funnily enough with, with a description of this guy who's nearly struck by lightning and it you know, this isn't a lab study this is real life and so there's a there's a video camera must be a security camera in some sort of college quadrangle and it's pouring with rain it's in it's in the southern states i think it's in north carolina and the guy's walking across a quadrangle taking about two steps a second under an umbrella and suddenly there's a flash and then he then he runs off you think oh, he nearly got struck by lightning ran for it slow it down frame by frame what happens is is you slow the video down you can find it on the internet and do this very easily as you slow the frames down there's suddenly a point where a lightning flash is visible on a frame the next frame the screen whites out with the lightning bolt hitting the ground the next frame and the frame after that he's still walking it looks like nothing has happened literally the guy's not reacted at all Then he starts to double over and I'll be hit by lightning and run for it. There's the half second. Now, in that half second, the whole world is made. Everything you believe, everything you think is important, all the good and bad and what you want and what you don't want, everything is made in that half second. That means that what we are looking for, if we want to find the truth of our life, is literally right in front of our noses. The problem is we look through it with unconscious inference and call it the world. And that's like looking through a window and not seeing the glass. So what meditation does is take the attention back so you see the glass. And when you see the glass, then you see how you are recognising You can actually cognize, recognition, you can actually make it an object of your own attention. And that's what meditators learn to do. And that transforms them because basically we are kind, we are intelligent and perceptive. That is our natural intelligence. We also have this advisor, which is what learns from experience and tells us what things are. That advisor is what took a naked ape from the savannas of Africa to driving around in a Ferrari. It was that advisor because that advisor learns from experience. But that advisor is not intelligent. It's mechanical. It merely goes, oh, I've seen that before. This is what happened last time. That's what it's doing. And it's paranoid. All it really wants is to, quote, protect you, which is why, of course, all news is bad news. We're not interested in the thousands of good news items that happen every day. All we care about is the bad news items, because all it wants to do is tell you, oh, you shouldn't do that, or you shouldn't do that, like an overprotective aunt or something, telling you what to do. So our natural intelligence, our freedom of mind, our capacity to be truly human is being covered over by reactivity. And the trick in meditation is to become less reactive through taking control of our attention. Now this is where now we start getting just a little bit technical. So we need to understand what captures our attention. Why are we being reactive? Our attention is caught and we react. What causes that knee jerk? Now this is where meditation has a lot to offer. Because all of us, anybody contemporarily educated knows how to pay attention. It must be the teacher's most common word, pay attention, pay attention. And this activity of paying attention is properly called adverting. You advert to something. You bring your old gaze to something, which is where the word advertising comes from. It captures your attention. The problem is, adverting is brittle. That's to say, if you advert on one thing, something else comes along and you advert to that, or you advert to that. You find yourself being dragged this way of that by your misunderstood adverting and indeed most beginning meditators tell you that their attention is very very weak and they get pulled this way thoughts come up sounds happen they can't concentrate now there is actually an, a secret here which lies within the meditation traditions there are two bits the concentration and this is really where the ancient lineages are so valuable because this distinction Is experiential. You can't pick up an object and explain it. You've got to actually have access to lineages that contain it so they can explain it to you. And the difference is this in attention, there is adverting, but there is also savouring. Now, savouring is very different from adverting. You pick up a cup of coffee and put it to your lips, that's adverting. You taste the coffee, that is savouring. Now, it's also concentration, but the difference is savoring is not brittle. If you can develop savoring, you engage, but you don't react because anything that comes to, quote, disturb you just gets incorporated into your state of savoring. Now, this distinction is intensely valuable because what we're seeking to achieve is calm, calmness, calmness in the face of arising events, not Lock out all events so nothing is happening. You know, stop thinking, sit in a quiet room, put your head under a duvet, hide. Not that. No, rather respond to events without reacting to them. You become wise. Now, the ability to respond without reacting is exactly what we associate with wisdom. It's the person who, when something comes up, they don't immediately I've got to do this, I've got to do that. They look at it, they think about it, they may examine it for a bit before they're obligated to make a reaction. That is a very, very important distinction. And that second element of meditation is something introduced literally week two in this little course of mine to begin to encourage savoring.
0: When you look at at leaders too, if you look at a room full of people, you, or in a, a group situation, you'll notice that many people, when there's a stimulus, they always do react. But a few people have that ability to interrupt that knee-jerk reaction, and they are able to then make the wise choices, because they aren't just reacting, they're able to step back. We'll talk about more of this when we get back from a break. We're going to go to a break right now for a few moments. Please stay tuned. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. For more on Richard Dixie's work and his book, Three Minutes a Day, go to his website, richarddixie.com. We'll be right back. After a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. I just love sharing with you on the show Every single week, inspiration, ideas, insights, we often have people deeply involved in research that can dramatically affect your well-being. So please make high-energy health a regular part of your life, and also make positive media generally a part of your life. I know I read the news every day usually, and so I spend a little bit of time doing that, catch up on what's happening in the world. And then I have three or four positive news channels I go read as well and read about all these amazing, fantastic, uplifting things going on in the world that are just under the radar of the mainstream media. So make sure you fill your mind with those things as well as the usual gloom and doom that you'll get from the New York Times and and the BBC. So high energy health is part of your arsenal of well-being tools that you have to Help yourself feel well and elevate your experience every every single day. Make the most of it. Also, for more on Richard's work, go to his website, richarddixie.com. His book is called Three Minutes a Day, and you'll find out more about the book and his other work at his website, richarddixie.com. Richard, you talk in your book, Three Minutes a Day, about the five obstacles. And again, these are things that often are barriers to meditators, beginning meditators especially, and are part of that tradition that you were describing. And it's teaching how to overcome things. Go ahead and share what those are and how we can be trained to overcome them.
1: Sure. You know, before the break, we were talking about the map, map making. And I mentioned very briefly that map making is protective. It's designed to keep us alive. It's designed to Make sure we're not going to be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, basically, is what map making is for. And as I said, mainstream media, because it is reacting to the map making, is always bad news. There's actually far more good news than bad news. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of good news stories every day because simple acts of human kindness are happening everywhere all the time. But they're not news because the map maker doesn't care about them it only cares about the one bad thing not the thousand good things it doesn't care about them as you say you have to literally advert your attention pay attention to the good news in order to read it now because it's protective the map maker is a little disturbed initially by any attempt to see it in operation like any protective mechanism, whether it's a government agency or a maiden aunt, it doesn't really matter. They don't really like you asking questions like, what are you doing? That's not a cool question to ask a protector. And the regime of mind, this map maker that makes a world for us, is equally protective of itself. There are so-called five obstacles that come up. They're really features that start manifesting when you begin to address cognition and in cognition, look at recognition, which is this reflexive map making. And the five of these, they're in two pairs in the single one. The first pair is attraction and aversion. Now, most of our map is either attraction or aversion. We're either going for things we want or avoiding things we don't, because that's what it does. And that and literally, as you begin to look, you see attraction and aversion, often you get sucked in to attraction and aversion. All you have to do is relax. Come back, and you'll find it just floats away. The second pair, agitation and dullness, and again, beginning meditators often are astounded to find that underneath what they thought was a calm exterior was all this agitation. And this is the map making reflexively making a map again and again and again and again and again. It actually does it twenty times a second, so it's, it's reflexively making a map. And this agitation is something again that you just have to relax. Come back to a meditation object. And then the reverse one, which is dullness, happens. If the map maker gets a little bit suspicious of you, it'll often try and put you to sleep. Oh, nothing happening. Just go to sleep. Again, you can overcome this dullness issue. It's another feature of the map maker, which leads to the final one, which is doubt. Now, the map is what took you from your cradle to where you are now in your life understandably, it's got pretty strong opinions about what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. And indeed, it listens to you. So all the little white lies you told yourself, all the broken promises, all those things that nobody saw, not true, the map maker saw them. And consequently, when you begin to look, it starts going, why are you doing this? Why bother? You've got a perfectly good life. Why waste time doing this stupid thing? What are you up to? This little voice. And this voice of doubt is the fundamental obstacle. And this is one of the reasons for the three-minute approach. Because most of the meditation traditions we have were developed by monks. And of course, for a monk, you meditate for an hour as part of your day job. I mean, come on, I mean, you're a monk. That's what you do for a living. <laughs> you you're a spiritual practitioner. But most of us are working, we've got busy lives, we haven't got an hour. So obviously the doubt says No time. So, one of the reasons for the three minute thing was to say, No, you have time. This is the time it takes to drink a cup of coffee. You can't tell me you don't have time. And I always get very depressed when I hear people saying, Oh, I tried meditation, but it's not for me. That is literally like saying, I tried walking, but it's not for me. It is that fundamental. And you go, No, no, you never actually gave it a go. And the reason is because most people are introduced to meditation in these very long and rather strict ways, which are not necessary to get the fundamental insights that meditation can offer. So that's one of the reasons why I felt, look, make it short, but make it direct. And the way the book is structured is you do a meditation practice for three minutes a day that's described in a chapter. And the deal is, guys, I'll explain exactly. What I want you to do, just do it for three minutes a day. And then at the end of the seven days of it, there'll be another one. Do that for three minutes a day. Now, this is to build up a referent. And this is a very important idea. A referent of what meditation is. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay, if I give you, if I hold up a piece of chocolate and I say to you, well, chocolate's brown, as you can see, but it's sweet and it's a little sticky and it melts in your mouth and this and that. I will never, ever, ever be able to tell you what chocolate tastes like. I have to give you a piece of chocolate. And then you go, oh, I get it. That's what chocolate is. It is direct. Now, that's true of all experiential terms. So meditation is entirely based upon looking at our experience as experience. It's entirely, quote, internal. There's no external part to it. So I have to use a word like adverting and then show you what adverting is. Then use a word like savoring and show you what savoring is. And if you go on doing that, by the end of 14 weeks, you will have an arsenal of terms which you understand, you've actually experienced for yourself. You'll have the taste of meditation.
0: And the book, Very Brief, too, in that 14 weeks, just, again, what the way it's structured is that you do a set of these very, very simple exercises. At the end of each chapter, Richard has possible objections that might pop up in your mind, and the answer to them. And then he says before the next chapter, now, make sure you do your seven days before you read the next chapter. And in a very simple way, he gives you a structure which is, sequential if one step builds on the next progressively as you'll find yourself settling into it at first and then very easily moving from stage to stage. We're going to go to a break right now. Please stay tuned. If you're listening to High Energy Health, my name is Dawson Church. For more on Richard's work and his book Three Minutes a Day, go to his website richarddixie.com. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. I'm so glad to be sharing with you today what could be more fun than this, (laughs) to immerse yourself in well-being, to immerse yourself in great ideas, to immerse yourself in ways of moving the needle in your life to have a, a better life. The things we're talking about, like meditation, contemplation, mindfulness, result in a dramatically better life. When we do studies of people who use these practices, we see huge increases in the brainwave configurations that indicate happiness. And they're getting dramatically happier, not just than their baseline, but also than the average baseline. So this can do a huge amount to make you feel much, much better and really increase your well-being. So I'm so glad you are making a habit of coming back here and being part of this wonderful, high-energy health community. For more on Richard Dixie's work, go to his website, richarddixie.com, and his book is called Three Minutes a Day. Richard, in your book you talk about effortlessness, and I chuckle because there's a teacher, a non-duality teacher, who talks about effortless mindfulness and meditating effortlessly and being effortlessly in a mindful state. But I'm really reminded of the words of the great Indian sage of the early 20th century, Ramana Maharshi. And he said, yes, you can get to effortlessness. It just takes a great deal of effort to get to that point. <laughs> so I was wondering what your take was on this whole concept you mentioned in the book of effortlessness.
1: This is really where we're getting into some deep stuff now. We live in a map. We actually live in a memory of the world. It's a 250 millisecond memory full of named things. Part of that map, that memory, is a referent, a memory referent called I. I am a memory. What in the actuality of experience, there's no actor. It's only when we remember, say, I was there. Then there's an I there. But in the actuality of being there, there's no I there. Any more than when I look at you, I see two things, your body and you. I don't see two. I only see one. You are there. I don't see you and you. But somehow when I remember myself, there's me and my body as if we're separate. Now, this is the fundamental duality that non-duality is referring to. This duality of self and other, which is constructed as a map reference so our memory can remember where we are. And there's all kinds of very important things in that simple statement. Now, effort is a very good example of dualistic activity. I am trying to do this. It's inherently dualistic. And indeed, by taking effort, what we do is we use our map, our idea of what we're doing, and we perfect it in one way or another. Now, obviously, if you're going to establish any change in your routine, it takes effort because if you don't have any effort, nothing is going to change at all. That's certainly true. And furthermore, the map making I've been referring to is happening at about 20 to 25 times a second. And the reason we know that is when you watch a movie and you slow the frame rates down at around about 20 times a second, you start to see it judder. That means that our visual system is refreshing itself faster than 20 times a second. That's why if the frames are moving less than 20 times a second, we can see them judder. When the frames are moving faster than that, we can't. We are making a map continuously at about 20 times a second. Now, to try to separate our cognition from our map-making recognition takes effort. But what happens if we're in cognition, not recognition? There's no effort because there's no map. There isn't a map in cognition. There's just actuality. All the efforts in recognition. So true mindfulness, full of mind, is effortless by definition. The trouble is we tend to situate our attempts to be mindful in a map. It's normally called be here, which is a map reference, and now which is a map reference. The entire statement, be here now, is a map reference. It's nothing to do with actuality. And unfortunately, many people who practice mindfulness attempt to do exactly that. And what they're trying to do is to literally find the actor in the TV screen. And you have to go, look, the actor's not in the TV screen, guys. You know, I'm sorry, this isn't real. It's a display. You need to see the display maker. Not look at the display if you're going to make any progress. Now, as you begin to separate your attention from reactivity, as you become less reactive because you are responding rather than reflexively reacting to what happens to you, so you enter states that are timeless and effortless. Because actually, you're entering the actuality from which the map is made. And that's where timeless and effortless mindfulness comes from. To do that, you must make effort, of course, because you have to at least do your three minutes a day, which means you've got to have some effort within your map. But the idea is you discover a timeless and effortless state. Initially, it's episodic. And the moment you find it, you lose it. Why did you lose it? Because you go, oh, I found it. The moment you go, oh, I have found it, it's gone because it's back in a map. And indeed, our very helpful maiden auntie map maker says, oh, I know what that is. I'll give you that again. But it can't. It can't give you something that lies outside the map. So we can't remember to meditate. Meditation is not a memory. It's actuality. So another term that's often used is meditation is finding authenticness. You become authentic. Now, authenticity is in very short supply. And as we become more and more mechanized in our culture, as now we have robotic intelligence appearing, authenticity is going to become the key feature of our humanity. What is authenticity? It is the actuality of our experience. Rather than knowing what it is, which is essentially a map. It's inauthentic. And indeed, a very sophisticated computer can model your map making and more or less predict what your map is going to tell you to do. It's quite uncanny. And their ability to do that is because the map making is mechanical. However, our actuality is not mechanical. And that is the freedom of mind that meditation can offer. It's the freedom of mind that gets a four-year-old baby to look at you and go, why do you do that? They just see. It's like scaringly direct. They'll just see immediately. They see hypocrisy. They see things you're hiding because their natural intelligence is not being covered over by continuous map making.
0: Well, explanation of the effort it takes to change the routine and then approach that place of surrender. I just love that way of seeing the relationship between the two. Thank you so much for that. And for more on Richard and his work, go to his website, RichardDixie.com. His book is called Three Minutes a Day. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and thank you for being here. Thank you for making High Energy Health part of your day and inspiring yourself and exposing yourself to new ideas and also make notes, take down some of these ideas, apply them in your own life. They can make a dramatic difference, not just to your sense of well-being, but also to your, your physiological health. You'll know from my books like Genie and Your Genes that it dramatically affects your gene expression. In some studies, we show hundreds of genes expressing differentially as you meditate, as you use energy therapies, as you stimulate your well-being in these ways. So uh, help help yourself by listening to these ideas and applying them in practical ways in your own life. And for more on Richard's work and his book, Three Minutes a Day, go to his website, RichardVixie.com. Richard, I'm really curious about where you go personally in your meditations every day. I know when I close my eyes and meditate, I find myself being drawn into this wonderful place that some of the Hindu traditions call the void. And it's not actually empty. It's it's full of light and substance, but it's just this vast ocean of primal consciousness. And I just love going there every morning and hanging out there for, you know, for me, it's about an hour or two every every day. And actually, it can be quite difficult to come back and deal with, you know, the the hacker trying to get into my credit cards and all the other stuff of running organizations and nonprofits. So I'm just curious where you find yourself personally in your meditations.
1: Okay, we're not what we think we are. We have a body. We always have a body. The body expresses itself in gene expression and physiological changes and all kinds of things. That's not its totality but that is part of its expression. We map our body as the thing we see, but that's just a map. That's not actually what it is. Now, when you begin to disconnect from reflexive map making, this recognitive array I've been talking about, and start entering a direct relationship with your incarnation, with your embodiment, you find all kinds of extraordinary characteristics that it contains. Now, it is empty of concept. It is empty of name. It is empty of designation because you've left all that behind. That's all in the, all in the map making. So, by definition, it's empty of all of those things. That doesn't mean it's empty. Anymore, the me not having words for chocolate means that chocolate has no taste. It has taste. It has rich clarity and fulfillment. It's all body. We live in an extraordinary state. All we're doing is narrowing it down to a tiny little sliver we call the known world. And we think that's where everything that matters happens. Not at all. As we begin to discover our cognitive freedom, so The five degrees of known becomes 50, 100, 120, 270, until eventually it's 360 of the real, the authentic, the genuine, the actual. Now, in that actuality are all kinds of what, to the 5% mind, look like miracles. You think this can't be happening. It's not allowed to happen. But actually, it does happen and can happen. The key for us is not to put it into words, which immediately compresses that freedom back down into the 5% again, but to embody it more and more totally. And as our embodiment becomes total, as our freedom becomes actual, we are moving steadily towards the unending expansion of wisdom, which is something that is truly our birthright as human beings. So it's like a kind of ever-expanding cone. And like you, I like to rest in emptiness, but I'm always finding conceptuality chewing away at the edges. (laughs) And one of the things that's important to say is experiences are very problematic. And the reason they are is if you have a blissful experience or a spacious experience, that conceptuality, oh, you've had a blissful experience, you've had a... You know, you're getting enlightened. All this language gets nibbling away again, trying to bring it back into a mapped experience. And this is really important to realize. You are never going to be enlightened because you are just a map reference enlightenment might be something that happens, but it won't be you. (laughs) That's the key. And people often say, oh, I'm trying to find the meaning of life. There's no meaning without me. The moment you realize that, that the word meaning is self-referential to some idea we've got about what might matter. And we realize that we need to go beyond what we know, beyond what we believe and enter actuality. And when we do so, it is warm, it's forgiving, it is brilliant, it is clear, it is expansive, And to me, it's just a huge journey of exploration.
0: I love that open-endedness of that and that analogy of that 360-degree world, which is what the five-degree world looks like in School of Miracles. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I strongly recommend the book, Three Minutes a Day. You'll find it's really easy and sequential to learn and practice. And again, Richard, I deeply appreciate you being here. And please join us again next week and every week for another episode of High Energy Health. Till then, be healthy, be happy. See you there.